So we're going to get started this morning. How'd that go? By way of um, introduction this morning, before we uh, pray and get started, uh, you may recall that Joel always asks, what are you reading? Now, I'm not going to ask you that, but last week when Joel said that, I told him I was teaching and studying Galatians. <laughs> so be careful what you say. <laughs> And by the way, if you're in my home group, uh, details tonight, 530. There's a pop quiz tonight, right? Ah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Kim, would you open us in prayer? Amen. So I've attempted to um, follow Joel's pattern for how he uh, teaches this, but you probably noticed we're going to study Galatians. And I was going to ask you what would be the overarching theme of Galatians, but kind of tipped you off with that. <laughs> yeah, it's an open book test. So why is Galatians important? other than the obvious reason that it's in the Bible and we should study what's in the Bible. But uh, why is Galatians important? You know, one of the questions that man has asked down through the ages and continues to ask is, how am I made right with God? And Galatians answers that question. As we study Galatians, we're going to see that there's some serious error that's taking place. And um, it's, this is going to answer all the questions that, um, that, you, that they had and we might have. And it clearly articulates that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Where does that come from? Reformation, maybe? Yeah. And the reason I say that <clears throat> is Luther said this, the epistle of the Galatians is my epistle I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. It's, uh, <clears throat> it is often thought of as the uh, cornerstone of the Reformation along with Romans. When, when Luther read this, it really opened things up for him. So if uh, Paul was first in line at the heavenly gates by works, then Luther probably would have been second. And after reading Galatians and really getting a grasp of it, um, his whole attitude changed. The way he saw the law, the way he saw works, and the way he saw what was going on in the church. So to whom was Galatians addressed? Well, there's a little bit of controversy about this. I, I think uh, very early, uh, many people, many theologians believe that Paul 
uh, was addressing this to some churches in the northern part of, uh, of what was called Galatia. But under the Roman Empire, Galatia became known as pretty much what we always thought of as Asia Minor or today Turkey. Uh, we don't have any evidence of Paul starting any churches in the, in the northern area of Galatia. You can see it's fairly blank up there. So, but many people thought that on his way to Macedonia that he went through there and founded some churches. But more modern uh, theologians consider it to be more related to the churches of Iconium, Lystra, Derby, down in the uh, Cilicia area, and even Pisidia, uh, Antioch. It's probably who he was writing it to. And that's going to um, be important when it comes to the date. I don't think there's any controversy about who wrote um, uh, Galatians. It's pretty clearly Paul who, who wrote Galatians. It, it's, a lot of it's his story, if you will. But the date is a little less sure. If he wrote it to the northern area of, um, of Galatia, then it would have a later date because he would, have, they, they would have, he would have been going through there on like his third missionary journey. But um, I kind of stuck with uh, the southern uh, Galatia area. And so that puts it more in the 49 AD time frame, right after his first missionary journey, about the time he went to Jerusalem. And, um, but a later date would be indicated in the mid 50s if it was the northern part. But I think he probably sent this to the southern Galatian churches that we, that we have listed in uh, his first missionary journey in the book of Acts. By the way, uh, if you've got any questions or comments or anything, be sure to go ahead and stop me because I might as well tell you that because you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so uh, feel, feel free to do that. So why is Paul writing Galatians? Well, these folks that are commonly called Judaizers, I, I said it slithered into the churches. They, they dogged Paul, if you will. They were coming out of Jerusalem, and as you probably know, at that time, there, there, was, um, there was not a, a line drawn between Judaism and Christianity the way we would see it today. Things had not fully separated. So you've still got some nationalistic Jews who, who profess faith in Christ, but their argument is going to be that Christ alone is not enough. And so they have come into these towns following Paul, and they're causing big problems. Uh, they challenge Paul's uh, apostleship. So we're going to see that as we get into the chapters that Paul... Uh, is going to have to defend his apostleship. He's going to have to um, convince people that the word that he has taught them is the true gospel, that he hasn't learned it from man. And we'll get into all that in uh, detail. But in his absence, they attempt to convince people that, um, yeah, Christ is necessary, but that's not enough you still got to follow the Mosaic law. So a large part of the book of Galatians is going to be refuting that. And then a small part on how to live as a uh, Christian. 
uh, the, one of the specific issues had to do with circumcision. That was a big deal. And also, we will see that there were some religious um, uh, elements related to festivals and, and other things that was necessary to be kept at the same time. And he's going to make a big deal out of bondage. Freedom versus bondage. Bondage under the law, freedom under Christ. So, the overarching theme is the gospel of justification by faith apart from law works. So Paul is, um, I hope you feel like reading, we've got a lot of scripture. So the gospel's origin is not human, but divine origin since it is independent of man's effort. In Galatians 1, start 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Why is that significant? Why, is he, why does he say that? Yeah, um, one, of the, one of the things about this is they're, they're apparently claiming that he's gotten his message secondhand. And he's going to refute that, that he received it by revelations. Uh, in a minute, we're going to find that uh, Paul makes it a point to say that I did not go to Jerusalem. And not only that, he's saying I was not taught by any man. He received it how? By revelation. By revelation. Pretty big difference. So he's got to refute that argument that they're making to those people. And uh, Old Testament scripture and history bear testimony to the truth of the gospel. Would somebody read Galatians 3, 5 through 9? Thank you. So we're going to see that Abraham is pretty important in the understanding that, that faith was there in the Old Testament as well. And Paul calls him the man of faith. And Abraham is going to come into Galatians a lot. Christ sets us free. Paul spends a considerable amount of time on uh, being held captive by the law versus having liberty under Christ. In Galatians 3, 23 through 27, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Then Galatians 5, 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
So Paul is talking about um, both groups, really. The, the churches in the southern part, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and Pisidia, and Antioch, were, were mostly uh, Gentile churches. You know, Paul's pattern was always go to the synagogues if there was one in the town, and that would form the basis for the, the new fledgling church. But the, church would have, the churches would have been overwhelming uh, Gentile. Now, according to the, the law, uh, according to this, if you're under the law, you've been held captive under the law. Were the Gentiles held captive under anything? Were they under bondage? Well, they were under a very similar bondage. It was, just, it was just a different bondage in the sense if the law was a curse and you're under bondage to the law, then they're under bondage to their gods, their religious practices. So it didn't matter which side of the equation you were on. You were under some form of bondage. And he's talking here about that in Christ, though, those bondages fall away. So let's, um, th those are, you got the overarching theme of justification by faith. Those are some of the aspects of that that Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians. So let's just kind of look how that plays out in each one of the uh, chapters. So the first thing Paul's got to do is defend his credentials as a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And he does that from the very beginning. He said, Paul, an apostle, nothing unusual about that. He often does that in the epistles that he writes not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The fact that he brings this up more than once in Galatians indicates that they're denigrating his apostleship. They're not accepting him as an apostle, and they're challenging his authority. He goes on to say that he's astonished that the Galatians have so quickly accepted the lies of the Judaizers. The point here is not long after the founding of these churches and Paul departs that these Judaizers come in and start trouble immediately. They've heard the truth from Paul, but yet they're very quick to fall away. Like, like us, like everybody, you're used to certain things. They were used to the bondage of, under their pagan religious practices and it's it's not a, a long leap to think that uh, they couldn't be under the bondage of something else but apparently these Judaizers are pretty slick um, we know from other writings that when these Judaizers went into Antioch Syrian Antioch and it said they came from James that James later in a letter said I did not send them to do that. I did not send them with those instructions. So essentially, he was apologizing. They were, they were using James as their authority, but they did not have his approval to do what they did. And we know from the, the councils, uh, when Paul does go uh, to see uh, James and John and, and Peter, that they don't add anything to him. So these Judaizers are speaking for themselves. They want to put 
the um, Galatian people under the same bondage that they are under. So he's astonished that it's happened so quickly. If you think about it, this is, at 49 AD, it, this could be one of his earliest uh, epistles and, and probably is the earliest epistle. So it's not been long after the founding of these churches that they are so quickly falling away. Well, in contrast to the Judaizers, Paul testifies that the gospel he preaches is not of human origin, but came directly from Jesus Christ. We, we said that earlier, came by revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is not dependent upon the Jerusalem church. He's making a point of that, that he's not dependent upon the Jerusalem church for his authority because he's saying that his authority doesn't come from man. It came by revelation from Jesus Christ. Uh, in Galatians 1, 16 and 17, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He doesn't even know them. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't um, disrespect them, but he doesn't know them. He's got his own authority. Chapter 2. So he's, he's been defending himself mainly in chapter 1. Um, we'll continue to do that in chapter 2 as well. So after his first visit to Jerusalem, Paul returns to Jerusalem 14 years later. So three years after he received Christ, he goes, and then 14 years later, he does the same thing. That's confirmed in the book of uh, Acts as well. And he takes Barnabas and Titus with him to meet what he calls the pillars. Now, he's making an assumption that they're the pillars of the church in Jerusalem because he doesn't, really doesn't know them. Um, there was, as I was reading some common carries on this. There was speculation as to why he only met with these folks. Some commentators thought maybe the others had run for the hills because this was Paul. But I, I don't know about that. But what is important is that at the end of his time with them, they added nothing to him. They did not add anything to him. In fact, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And the only thing they asked was that they remember the poor. That was it. But wait a minute. Here comes Peter. Oh, Peter. Public confrontation with Peter because of Peter's hypocrisy. Peter, Peter was a man that could succumb to fear, uh, intimidation. And apparently in uh, Syrian Antioch, he does exactly that, and that's where Paul is. And so here he's, he has challenged uh, Peter, calls him Cephas. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Now, prior to this, what had happened with Peter that, that would lead you to believe that he's got it? What, what has happened with Peter that would lead you to believe that he understood? 
and that he now accepted the gospel for what it really is. Yeah, and just prior to that, the incident with the uh, sheets coming down with all the different animals in it, uh, he's telling him to kill and eat, with the greater significance being that the intent is to bring in the Gentiles, that nothing um, is, is bad. And Peter says, not me, but he finally gets it, and, he, and the incident with Cornelius. But here, until he comes under pressure, Peter apparently is doing fine. And then he comes under pressure from these Judaizers, and Paul calls him out. But Peter's going to redeem himself. Well, both Jew and Gentile justified by faith, Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You cannot work your way into heaven. All right, moving on to chapter 3. So, in chapter 3, he gets into proof. Begins his proof text, if you will, to demonstrate that it is justification by faith. What he just said in the closing of chapter 2. So some, some of the proof would be the experience of the Galatians. The Spirit's presence presents proof of faith's effectiveness. The Spirit's presence. Somebody read Galatians 3, 1 through 3 for me. rhetorical question that he asked them. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now Abraham comes into the picture. He's going to further demonstrate that uh, Abraham's faith proves faith's effectiveness in Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Somebody read that for me. The man of faith. In, in um, I think it's Hebrews, correct me if I'm wrong, Abraham saw the gospel saw it, uh, afar, meaning it wasn't clear. But he did get it. His faith was credited to him as, as righteousness. So Abraham's faith proves faith's effectiveness. And then the curse of the law proves the ineffectiveness of works of the law. Galatians 3, 10 through 11. 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. So why are you cursed if you're under the law? Yeah, it, it's going to break bad, right? Um, yeah, so if you can't do it perfectly, which is the requirement, then you're doomed. You're under a curse. And I think I mentioned earlier that the same thing applies over on the, on the uh, Gentile side too. If your plan for salvation, how to be made right with God, is uh, to follow your particular religious practices... Uh, sacrifice to your gods and all the other things that go along with that, uh, you're doomed as well. So you're under the curse, whichever side you follow. There, there's only one solution to that problem is the argument that Paul is making, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. So the promise made to Abraham is everlasting and is superior to the law. So one of the things that apparently is occurring is that these Judaizers are claiming that because the um, law came after the promise made to Abraham, some 430 years, he says, that it is superior to the promises made to Abraham. So Paul is going to spend some time comparing and contrasting that and proving that that's not the case. In fact, they're two different things. They're, they're not even related uh, definitively in, in the case of salvation. The law has nothing to do with salvation. In fact, earlier he called it a guardian until faith came. So the promise made to Abraham is everlasting and is superior to the law. Galatians three fifteen through 18. Somebody read that for me, please. Does anybody remember how God ratified the covenant that he made with Abraham? Yeah, uh, so typically in, in a covenant between two parties and you, and you would do this process of splitting the animals, both parties would walk through their signifying their, their agreement with the covenant and their pledge to keep the promise. Uh, did, did Abraham go through there? No. no. So God ratified the covenant on both sides. 
So he made the promise for Abraham because Abraham can't keep it. We can't keep it. So he's making the, uh, the point here that this covenant ratified by God cannot be annulled. A covenant made cannot be easily uh, broken. It can only be changed by God. And God doesn't change His promises. So the law acted as a guardian. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Uh, if you were to um, spend time, if you were to go to Galatians and, and study it some, you're going to see he, he spends a fair amount of time discussing uh, heirs and guardians. And we're going to talk about it a little, but not, not much. So the law acted as a guardian to them, which uh, they, they kicked and screamed and rebelled at, at every step of the way. Prior life under bondage to the world. That's what they were, uh, prior life under bondage to the world. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So the child may eventually inherit everything, but until they are of age, they may inherit it, but they don't, they're not the owner of it at that time. What's the, what would be the elementary principles of the world? We've kind of talked about that a little bit already. Get all you can, can all the rest. And, and, and we're going to see that, uh, I think it's in this chapter 4, where uh, Hagar and Sarah come into the picture to talk about that. Um, I think the elementary principles of the world are all those practices that we follow, whatever they may, whatever they may be. It's a, different versions of the Bible use uh, different terms, rudimentary um, principles of the world, but all of those uh, practices, religious uh, and whatever they may be, we were children, we were enslaved to those things on, on either, either side, whether you're under the law or whether you're under the, the Gentile practices as well. But then, new life in Christ. Galatians 4, 4 through 6, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under 
the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul is saying this is the new life that you have in Christ. You're, you're no longer enslaved. You have a new life. You're a new creation. And just like Jesus could cry out, Abba, Father, we can too because of what Jesus Christ did. So further he goes on in chapter 4. He makes a personal appeal. You got to Paul is, Paul is, you, it's clear Paul is very hurt uh, as he talks to these people. He's hurt, he's perplexed, he's astonished. Uh, sometimes there's little flashes of anger uh, that come, comes through. And, and why not? He has poured his life into these people. He has shared the gospel of the truth with them. And now so quickly they have fallen away. So he makes a personal appeal to not abandon the gospel. It's like they want to go back. They want to they leave a life of liberty to go back to a life of bondage. So if the Gentiles are just going to be swapping one enslavement for another. An enslavement, a bondage that can do nothing for them. So he makes this personal appeal. He says, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. He has poured his life into them. Now, uh, we were talking about Hagar and uh, Sarah. So Paul then gives some scriptural proof through allegory. He uses Hagar and he uses Sarah to, to further his uh, point. So the position of Hagar versus the position of, of um, Sarah. So Sarah is coming from a position of superiority to Hagar's position of inferiority. And of course that would be Ishmael and Isaac as well. It says in uh, chapter 4, 22 and 23, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. The promise that was made to Abraham went back uh, chapter 15 or so of uh, Genesis. Uh, the promise that was made, the promise that cannot be revoked. Well, he's figurative, figuratively comparing or contrasting the slave woman, Hagar, with, uh, and, and she represents the law, with the free woman who represents the promise. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. If they go back, to following the law, they go back to being enslaved by the law, and they are in line with Hagar and not Sarah, who has the promise.
struggle that they had in Galatia is very similar to the struggle that Luther had and the Reformation had with the New Catholic Church. It seems that humans have a tendency to want to be enslaved. And, and that's true today. Uh, even in churches that profess to be Christian churches, uh, sometimes there are things added to it, to uh, salvation. I think, I think we just have a tendency to like rules and regulations and have our lives confined in a box. Exactly. And, uh, if you have a list of things like the rules and regulations, you don't have to wrestle with God. There's no uncertainty. There's no mystery. There's no trying to understand his providence. There's no room for um, God love. God disciplines those he loves and conforms <coughs> us to the image of Christ through suffering. There's none of that. It's just it's a bunch of rules that we follow and then we're kind of graded based on Our whole society is structured around rules and regulations. Do this, don't do that, and everything will be, everything will be good. Uh, and the Bible recognizes the struggle that Joel is talking about throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Uh, there's a lot of ink used on uh, that very topic, uh, the tendencies that, uh, that we are under. So liberty being freedom from bondage or law, bondage. Galatians 5, 1 through 3. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What did Christ say about his yoke? Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep 
the whole law. It is impossible. Um, I don't think I have it in here, but he, in another verse, he says that these very people that want you to be circumcised and to follow these particular religious practices themselves are not keeping the law. So it's kind of like, uh, do as I say, but not as I do. And then liberty and license. Would someone read 5, 13 through 15? So Paul is beginning to transition a little bit in how to live the Christian faith. Probably everyone's. You know, if uh, to, the, to the point of the struggle that we have, if you put up a sign that says, do not walk across the grass, what's going to happen? Yeah, I think sometimes we, we try to, sometimes we, we wonder how far can we go when maybe it's more, rather than that, it would be the attitude, the motive for why we do the things that we do. So continuing on in chapter 5, <clears throat> it's a battle of the spirit versus the flesh. The Bible spends a lot of time on this. In Galatians 5, 16 through 18, it says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So I'll put this uh, 
symbol up here, the helmet of, of, of the warrior here with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate and all of that. <clears throat> so those are the things that Paul said in Ephesians that we need to put on every single day to be able to deal with the very thing that you were talking about, um, Susie. And it's still, it's still a struggle. But it's a, Paul was talking about this war that's going on between the spirit and the flesh. And that's how he's leading into, in chapter 6, his closing instructions. How to live together in Christ. How do we live together in Christ? We are called one body. And we're all part of one body. So how do we do that? Well, he says the spiritual should gently restore a sinning member. Watch yourself that you don't get caught up in sin. While you're restoring this person, you can easily get caught up in sin, is the point he's making. Bear one another's burdens. Now, are we supposed to bear everybody, every burden that everybody has? Is that what it's about? Yeah, there, it's exact, you're exactly right. There's two words. And, and one is much heavier than the, than the other one. If we carry the burden that Jesus told us to carry, the one that is light, that's the lighter one. But then we add all this other, we start piling on stones. Yeah, two words. Everybody's got a certain amount of burden that they have to carry on their own that no one else can carry for you. That should be the light burden. One of the ways to carry other people's burdens is simply to pray for them consistently, regularly. Yeah. Right. An important part. And then he talks about the, the law of Christ. Love one another. He also, in the previous verse, he talked about love your neighbor as yourself. What's the second greatest command? That presupposes that you're also uh, doing the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. Lay aside arrogance and conceit. And then carry your own burden. Share with uh, the two words. Share with those who teach. Now, it, it's not really explicit on that, but I got the sense from this and, and reading numerous theologians that by this time, there was, a, there was some split already in the church that there were people who principally pastored the church, taught were the teachers of the church, and then there was the people, the elders, who principally ruled in the church, ran the church, if you will. And their, and their take on this was uh, those who spend their livelihood teaching the church, you should take care of. A warning he gave, you will reap what you sow. These folks are in danger of, of sowing some really bad seed and then, uh, and then reaping some bad crops. Be benevolent to all people, but especially to those in the church. The Judaizer's boast is the law. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You know, earlier he said, don't be arrogant and conceited. There is arrogance and conceit on their part. Paul's boast is the cross of Christ. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then he closes again, justification by faith alone, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation in Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, thank you. Let me close. Father God, we just uh, praise you on this day, and we thank you, Lord, for your word that you preserved for us in Galatians. Father, how you have made it crystal clear that the promises that you made long, long time ago apply to us as well, and that they will never be revoked, and we just thank you for that. Father, uh, as we leave this uh, Sunday school lesson and we go into church, pray that you'd prepare our hearts to worship you, that you would be with Pastor Joel as he preaches, and Father, that um, we would be attentive, that you'd open up your word to us. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you.